Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. On today's episode of One for the Road, I have to issue a trigger warning as there are discussions around childhood abuse and suicide. So my guest today is Lucy Bruce. Lucy lives in Glasgow with her two daughters and has now been sober for 18 years. Her childhood was impacted by alcohol, violence and sexual abuse and she self-medicated with alcohol throughout her teens and early 20s until suicidal thoughts and panic attacks made her seek help to get sober. Despite removing alcohol, Lucy struggled with unresolved childhood trauma and suffered from obtrusive thoughts surrounding her pregnancies until years later when she experienced MDMA therapy and has never looked back. Lucy is a single parent, has weathered divorce, codependent relationships and loss, but still lives a life free from alcohol. I will be taking a break from my podcast for now, but I'll let you know as soon as the next episode is due to be aired. Meantime, if you're looking for any further support, please head over to my website at soberdave.co.uk. Good morning, Lucy. Welcome to One for the Road. How are you today? I am fabulous, Dave. Do you know, this is the first time in eight years that my children have gone on holiday with their father. So I am luxuriating in this child-free space. Oh, At the amazing. moment, I am. Although I'm not on holiday, it feels like a holiday to me. So I am enjoying it. Uh, plenty How of lions. Yeah. Well, as I said, I'm a, I'm a, I've got this big daft dog, so I don't get a chance to lay in because she's scratching the door at half past seven every morning for her breakfast. So I am a glutton for punishment, as my mother says. I never, nothing is enough. I always take on far too much. Well, there's an answer to that: is let her in the bed. Uh oh. Or, or else, or else, yeah, that that's true, maybe. <laughs> She's a very well, hairy I, dog. My well, white sheets, I don't think they would last. No, I've got a different dog because, as people know, mine's like a cat. I call her cat dog because she's a little chihuahua. And when she's in the Aww. bed, you don't even know she's there. Do you know what I mean? So it's a bit no, different, isn't it? I've got a big canny course. So I've got one of these big, huge bulldog type oh, dogs. So there, no, there's no big. room for me. No, no, no <laughs> forget that. Anyway, um, thanks for joining me today. Um, and you have a powerful story. Um, and it, we, as usual, we begin from the beginning. So what was it like for you growing up? Well, Dave, my kind of story starts pretty early because um, my, 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 I, I had quite, I, I remember actually when I was a wee, a wee girl and I had what I felt was quite an idyllic childhood up to that point. I can remember just kind of bobbing along and, you know, feeling 
very happy and sort of secure. I, I obviously was unaware of other things that were going on, but um, my father was an alcoholic. Um, he, he hadn't been, and suddenly he became an alcoholic because of possibly mental health or work pressures, and um, his alcoholism really hit our family like a sledgehammer. Um, and I went from having this idyllic childhood to uh, just, it was just a, a war zone. Um, so I have one brother and, um, you know, when we were wee, we used to share a bedroom and I can just remember so vividly being woken up in the middle of the night with kind of screaming and shouting and having never heard anything like that before in our house. It was like, you know, we were instantly so frightened and um, we went down the stairs to see what was happening and the door opened and my mum was covered in blood and it was just carnage and that just started a series of events that kind of really took over my childhood. Um, I think my, my dad obviously was was in the kind of depths of, of his drinking and um, he had had an affair and it, that that kind of obviously broke up her family. And um, my, I, I remember so, so when I was, when I was like trying to keep the family together, I thought that was my job. And I tried, you know, I thought that if I could just keep him happy, if I could just be a good girl, that everything would be okay. And, uh, you know, and I think so many children kind of take on that role. They, they they think it's something to do with them. And I really did think it was something to do with me. I really thought that if I just could be what he needed me to be, that we could be a family again. And there was just nothing further from the truth that was just never going to happen. And it really turned, our, you know, our lives completely upside down. We We had to move from our family home. We lived in the countryside at that time because my father was from there. And we moved from the country. Uh, we moved. We moved nearer um, to to where my grandparents stayed at the time, and that those were my father's grandparents. So, you know, I would just I would go to school as usual. My mum had to work really long hours because she had now was on her own, and you know, my dad would kind of drop in and out, and he would drop in and out, and sometimes he would be okay, and sometimes he would be, you know, you could tell, I could sense that he. Had, had been drinking and just on the turn you know he could just turn for absolutely anything and my mum would again be really violently assaulted and it just became so I mean I, I mean I felt as if I was just a shell of a child and I remember thinking you know where did I feel most safe and where I felt most safe at the time was with my grandparents and um, specifically my grandmother. She, My mum had to work, as I said, really long hours and she was working in the city. So she would work and she would be away and we would be at school and then we would be, you know, with my grandparents and my, my grandmother just felt like such a safe, safe place for me. And I used to remember, you know, always trying to get off school so that I could just be with my grandmother and feel safe. Um, and I did that and I did that so much. So I would just pretend to be, be sick all the time. But unfortunately, in that situation where I was sort of seeking comfort, 
my grandfather used that opportunity and he was sexually abusing me. Um, and he did that, you know, from when I was about four till about 10. And that became this other horrific, horrible secret. And eventually my mum just to kind of be near her work and so that maybe just to get away from all the, I think she thought if she got distance between my dad and her, the violence would lessen. And by this time they were divorced. So, you know, he shouldn't have really been anywhere near her. So we moved and it should have got better because we'd moved away from from that situation. But it actually got worse because I used to have to spend so much more time one-on-one with him. So I used to have to spend like every Wednesday, every weekend with with my father. And also that would also mean by proxy, I was spending it with my grandparents. So I, I just, it was just... I mean, it was it was no childhood. It just felt like my whole childhood was surrounded with alcohol and violence and abuse. And I remember it was just, you know, I used to try and deal with it and cope with it. And I remember, you know, being at school and being with friends and they were just completely, I mean, who knows what was happening in their lives. So, you know, I, I, I really don't know. There could have been lots of things going on. But I can remember always, you know, if it was a Wednesday and I was due to go and see my dad on the Wednesday, I would be saying to them all day, do you think my dad will be drunk tonight? Do you think he'll be drunk tonight? Do you think he, thinking that that would make a difference? And I obviously wouldn't. But I was just, I don't know why I did that, but I did that. And the kids must have been like, she's crazy. I mean, I'm talking about when I was like eight years old. And then I would go home and I would be waiting for my dad to come and pick me up. And I would, you know, get my backpack ready and I would be sitting at the door and I would be waiting for him. And he would usually be, you know, up to two hours late, but I would not leave that spot. And then I would go down to the car and from the very second that he, the first syllable that he said to me, I knew he'd been drinking. You know, you just become so attuned to them. You just know he's drunk. And then I would put my hand under the seat and there would be a bottle of whiskey. And it was just like, and so the nightmare begins. And I mean, my dad actually, he was never violent towards me, but he was violent in his in his demeanour. He had a very aggressive demeanour and he he... It just never felt safe. He never felt safe. I just felt so scared of him. And, you know, when I had to spend a weekend with him, I, as I said, I had an older brother. And because he was older, he could kind of go and see his friends. And I was sort of, I felt it was my job to stay with him and just keep my dad company sort of thing. And by the time, if I spent a Friday to a Sunday with my dad, by the time I got home, I was an absolute wreck. I was a wreck. And I even at that age, I felt so resentful towards my mum because I thought, you've had a weekend where you've, you know, you seemingly have had fun and she had a new boyfriend and she was enjoying herself. And I've just had the most horrendous time on my own. And I remember coming back and I would like, you know, make myself sick. I would wet the bed just so that I could maybe sleep in beside my mum and feel safe. And 
I started hearing voices as well. I was just so tormented and I really did believe that I wasn't safe and that possibly he would break in and he would hurt us or hurt my mum. So I think my mum got to the point that she was like, something needs to change. I mean, I honestly had no had no friends because I was constantly with my dad at the weekend. So I wasn't like, you know, I'd moved and I, I made friends and I was hanging out with him at the weekends. That wasn't happening. Um, so she did ask, can, can we change it? You know, very kind of, can we change it so that weekend on, weekend off? And that was enough for him to just go crazy. And, I, you know, I remember again coming home from school. He was there, but she never usually would come to her house because it was nothing to do with him. And he was there. My mum came home from work. You could just cut the tension with a knife. And she said one word and then he just you know, went for her. And I just remember her being beaten and being thrown down the stairs. And I thought she was going to be murdered. And I, I went into, you know, a neighbour who I didn't know because we hadn't been there that long, that long. And I said, I think my dad's going to kill my mum. Please help. And they actually didn't do anything. They just, they just sat and maybe for an hour. And then I went back and I was shaking. And she was at the bottom of the stairs and she had blood coming out of her ear and it was just it was just horrendous and she actually at that point could have you know pressed charges um but she didn't want to put us through that but it, it was just I mean that was I, I think at that point it was just like it was that was the last time that he did that but it was just such a series of events for a child that was you know my whole my whole existence was just consumed with my father and his behaviour. And then, you know, unfortunately, on top of that, being abused by his father and not feeling safe at any point and not having any social skills, you know, just not having any real, you know, I wasn't able to develop into maybe the confident little girl that I could have been. I was just, I was a wreck of a child. Um, so ultimately that kind of went on we, we I that went on for a while and the next kind of point that I would recall was when I started kind of asserting my own control and that 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 was when I, I developed an eating disorder because before that I was I mean I probably through the drinking and everything else trying to self-soothe myself I would eat. So I was chubby. I had, you know, curly hair. I was like frizzy hair and I we didn't have any money. So I had no branded trainers. I just stuck out like a sore thumb in this new place. And I I realized that when, when I stopped eating, that actually people for a change took notice of me. They actually said, you know, that for all of a sudden, people saw me and I really loved that feeling. I loved the feeling of just being important maybe or feel, I mean, it was it, it really, obviously when you look at the human needs, it, it ticked a few boxes and um, I had a really, you know, bad eating disorder for a good couple of years. And um, 
then I, I kind of found alcohol. So that kind of went up until I was, uh, say, about 15. I had an eating disorder. And um, I, ha- I have to say that I mean, although my dad did obviously have a, you know, a real terrible drinking habit, my mum was a very middle-lane drinker. She, she, I only saw her drinking and saw it being fun. I didn't see it being a problem at all. She's, you know, she became more vivacious and more, you know, relaxed when she had a drink. So on one hand, alcohol was just like the devil. But when I saw it with my mum, there was really none of that. Um, And I, I, up to that point, I'd always said, I'll never drink because I just saw the torment that it had caused my father. But I can't quite remember exactly what what happened, but I I think it was along the lines of I was going to like a school disco or something like that. And my mum had, you know, she was of the mind that if you drank in the house or if we drank in front of her, that that would be safer. And I can kind of see what she was, you know, the logic in it. But, you know, I remember, I think she gave me peach snaps or something like that. The good old peach snaps. And um, I, I loved I loved it and I loved the feeling that it gave me. So, I, you know, I would be going to a school disco feeling like I was so ugly and so nobody wanted to talk to me and I had that alcohol and I just felt like, wow, mm. <laughs> you know, here I am, here I come. Um, and it, it, that's what it, that's what it did for me. And I just felt like it gave me this, this confidence and, it made me feel as if I was special, and it, and I really did love the feeling, even the warm feeling when I drank it, and it kind of like percolated through my body, and I just loved how it made me feel. But and I think that I was able to kind of, I mean, not for a long time. It was just like occasionally I'd have a peach snaps or something like that. But then we went to to a family gathering, and there was alcohol everywhere, and it was, I mean, it was very much like you know you have a peach snaps and lemonade, whatever it was. And then I just loved that feeling. And then somebody else maybe gave me a vodka. And before I knew it, I, you know, I just, the, the whole kind of evening or day passed by and I got, I was getting really, really drunk. And I woke up the next day and I just woke up with a feeling of absolute dread. I'd never experienced it before. And um, I woke up and I, I remembered that I had said something to my mum about having been abused and I just wanted to block it out and she confronted me and she was you know you told me everything and I I obviously had been holding on to it for so long that as soon as I as I had the opportunity it all just came tumbling out and um yeah it was it was pretty it was that was pretty horrendous it was just like I wanted to just put it all back in the box and I couldn't but um, from there, again, it was like there were so many incidents where I would be able to drink. Oh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't black out or anything like that. But then there was times when I did, and it was just so, so bad. Um, and around that time, around that time, I got a job in a hotel, and I got a job in a hotel, 
as like a glass collector because it was only 15 at the time. And um, so I was in there. I was, you know, I was, I'd lost all this weight. I had started having a bit of a relationship with alcohol and I was put into this situation and um, it was filled with like a lot of older guys. And I had never even had a boyfriend before this situation. So I went in there and I started, they started complimenting me. They started, you know, I started feeling like I was actually pretty, you know, because I'd felt like the most disgusting person that existed to suddenly people were, you know, paying me compliments. And it became like, I just, I just loved going there. It just became everything to me. So I went from being this really studious, you know, girl. I mean, I found it really difficult to actually concentrate at school, but because I think there was just so much going on. But I went from being this really studious girl that wanted to do well to just my whole life revolved around when I went to this hotel and worked because I just felt special. And I used to drink before I would go to work because I knew that that would make me a bit more um, able to deal with with these older guys. They had all the chat, they had all the patter, and I didn't. So whenever they spoke to me, I would go bright red. So I used to drink before I would go to work. And eventually, you know, one of these guys and I had a relationship. Well, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a relationship, but basically my first sexual experience, I was, the guy was 39 years old and I was, uh, you know, 15, 16. And I thought he loved me and I thought that we would be together and I thought he would be, he would like take care of me and I would be safe. And, I, you know, I, and I, I can remember even thinking in my mind, I won't need to drink anymore. I'll be able to just be taken care of and he'll love me. But he just wanted nothing to do with me. You know, he, he got what he wanted and then he just discarded me. And that just, it made me go on such a downward spiral. I mean, I don't know what my mum thought was happening. I mean, she seemed to be quite oblivious to the whole situation. Um. So I just, you know, I was, you know, in my mind, I thought to, to get back at him, to make him jealous, I'm just going to get in with another crowd of people. And it was, again, it was another crowd of older older guys. And um, they introduced me to cocaine. And, you know, I was doing things that I would just never have dreamed of doing. And I was just desperate to be loved and looking in all the wrong places. And I was like a lamb to the slaughter. There was just, it was just such a dangerous situation for somebody like me to have been in. And I think that, you know, in those situations, I felt like, you know, people, you know, you, you can imagine older people, older women in these situations would have been looking at me thinking, oh, she's just, you know, look at her. She's a bit of an upstart, but actually... I was just looking for some significance. I was just looking to be loved and cared for. But when you've had, when you've been sexualized as a child, you just don't know, you know, it's just a, it's just a different equation for you. It just, it's just not the same, you know, you, you just don't think about things in, in the same way. And when you're in a situation like that, you're just, you know, it, it was just a recipe for disaster. So it was it was a pretty horrible it was horrible but you know 
I do say I'm I am lucky, Lucy, and I do still believe that. And out of that situation, I don't know how I did it, but I ended up because I actually left school. I left school because I didn't want these guys to know I was still at school, which is horrendous when you think about it. But I applied for a an exchange program and I went to Italy for a year. And I was able to kind of live like a teenager there for a year. Um but alcohol was still playing a huge part. I mean, I went to a house where my family were kind of really upper class uh, Italians. And I thought I was going to go to somewhere where it would be like bowls of pasta and lasagna and, you know, uh, this really warm environment. But it, it, it wasn't like that. My family were quite different. And they were, um, you know, they used to play violin at night and play the piano. They didn't have a TV. And I, there's me landing like, what the hell is this? Um, and I went to school there and I went to school every day, but I would finish at like three o'clock and my family wouldn't come home from work till about eight o'clock. So we wouldn't have dinner till eight. So I had all this time on my hands. And I I used to go to like the local bar and I would sit and I would have what they called Cuba Libre. And I would have two large Cuba Libre, which was like free pouring rum. And I would be absolutely steaming, steaming. And then I would go up and have dinner and they would have wine at dinner and stuff like that. So even though I was in a, a totally different environment, it was still playing a huge part in my life. I had real social anxiety and boredom and I used to stave it off with alcohol. And I had a lot, again, there was times over there where I blacked out and I couldn't remember. They were kind of, they seemed a bit oblivious to it. But it was it was a beautiful experience in so many ways because I really got to connect. I, I went to school with children that were like maybe three years younger than me, and I was able to sort of have a have a teenage experience, so to speak, and it, it was lovely. I came back um, to Scotland thinking I'm going to go to university now because they were quite academic and I really wanted to do well, and. I came back to Scotland and I ended up in yet another relationship with a much older man. And again, somebody that really was narcissistic, didn't treat me well, didn't have my best intentions. And that's what I was attracted to, these types of men. And again, he treated me really badly and I leaned on alcohol to numb the pain. I, I just, the rejection... You know, I, I felt as if even in, in all amongst all that, I, I had such self hatred, but I also had a feeling that I was a nice person and I was, a, you know, I was attractive. So why am I enough? Why can't you just love me? But I just picked all the wrong people, so that's that's what happened. So again, when he, when he mistreated me, I just went on a downward spiral again, and it was years and years of being in extremely dangerous situations, blacking out all the time, you know, get not knowing how I got home, you know, waking up in places and not know how not knowing how I got there. And just the the self-loathing was just all consuming. I mean, I used to have jobs and I I would you know, I would just go out. I wouldn't care. It would be like a Wednesday night, I would go out and then I I wouldn't make work the next day and I would make an excuse, I'd pull a sickie, I'd change jobs. And I just did it. And, you know, I would sometimes I'd be able to drink. When I say moderately, I mean to extreme excess. 
And then other times I would drink. It would almost be like just I need to drink. I need a session. I, would, I mean, I, I on a few occasions I'd drink like a, a litre bottle of vodka. And I don't know how I managed to do that and survive, but I did do that and I did it, you know, maybe with someone else. But, oh, it, was, it really was horrendous. I just, and, and waking up and the, the feelings, it was just so terrible. Luckily, I met my now ex-husband and we he was a different kettle of fish. He wasn't a narcissist. He wasn't a bad person he was he was a good guy but we partied together and we partied very very hard um you know he saved my life on a few occasions where I had choked on my sick um I got to the point where you know I I stood on a a, a windowsill three stories up and really wanted to die and there were so many occasions like that. I just, you know, I couldn't recover from hangovers. I would drink, we would drink all night. It would all be under the guise of a party. But my way of drinking, it wasn't that. It was it was to numb pain. As you can imagine, I had just, I had so much pain that I had just pushed down. And my way of dealing with it was to drink. So if we started drinking, I would drink until I blacked out. And the next day I would have horrendous panic attacks. I would I would honestly think that I was going to have a heart attack. So I would I would ask him to take me to the hospital. And then it got to the point that when I started drinking, and I think you had uh, touched on this with uh, Dr. David Nutt, when you talked about when you drink to a certain point, you can actually start having the panic attacks. Well, you know, it's not the hangover, it's actually... On the way up, you start having the effects of the. It was it was like I was having panic attacks while I was, you know, just starting to drink, and I was like, "This what's what's going to be next? I can't cope with this. I can't live like this." Um, and we met somebody that we had actually used to drink with, uh, and this guy I thought had been a much worse kind of drunk than I was, and he'd seemed to got his he got his life together and I was like how did you do it how did you do it because I had been looking up things like AA but I just was too nervous to go to them I, I just felt like I didn't believe that I was an alcoholic per se I just wanted to moderate my drinking so this guy told me I'm, I, I've been to this lady she's an alcohol counsellor so we got her number and you know I made the appointment and I, I went to see her on a Monday morning and obviously on the Sunday night I got rip-roaring drunk. <laughs> um, and I went to see her and I stopped drinking. And it, it, I, when I met her, I really connected with her and she had obviously, she'd also stopped drinking like many, many years before. And I was just at that point so desperate. I was so desperate. I was like, this has to be, it's this or I'm going to die. And I don't even think I, I don't even think people from the outside would think have thought that. I think they would have thought she drinks too much. She makes an arse of herself. You know, she becomes a bit of a liability. But they probably didn't think that I was to the stage, but I was just such an overthinker. So between drinking 
and I I had tried to stop myself. I tried moderation. I tried stopping vodka and drinking uh, wine. I didn't, I mean, I even when I did drink, it was like once or twice a week, but I did it to such, it was binge drinking to such excess that it took such a toll on my body that I just couldn't, mentally, I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't deal with it anymore. And so when, when, I, when I met this lady after trying to stop myself, it was just, it was, it was just the answer, or it felt like the answer to all my prayers. So <laughs> Sounded like uh, when I met uh, my friend Piers that day, when he said to me, "How would you like to join me for three months?" Because on paper it sounds like you've just stopped, but it sounds to me that there was a lot of internal dialect going on for a long time inside your head. Um, you know, standing on the window ledge, three stories up, and there's something inside you. That's saying, you either sort this out or you die. And that woman that you met came along at the perfect time. And I've always described it as a 12-hour opportunity that I had, like you had then. You either go through that door and see what's the other side or this isn't going to end up well. you know. And and after all that, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I was captivated by that whole story and... You know, it's interesting to me. I, I want to ask you a question in a minute, but it's interesting to me that you always look for an older man. Uh, that's one thing. But two, I'm interested in when you told your mum about the abuse, how did she react to that? I think she felt, in retrospect, so at the time I, it just felt like a bit of a daze and I, I didn't even want to engage with her. But I felt, I, I think... She was she was very angry, but she did. God love her. This I don't think I've ever shared this with anyone, but she had said that she'd always had a question mark over him. Yeah, and she felt uncomfortable around him, and she'd seen him with another a member of the family, female member of the family, and she felt uncomfortable about what she'd seen. Um. So she shared that with me since. She was very angry. She wanted to press charges, but it was very reactive. And it wasn't at the time. It was just too much for me. Too much. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I have to say that many, many years later, my mum and, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Do you want to pause? No, my- my mum and my ex-husband, uh, they confronted him. They confronted my grandfather. And he admitted what he'd done. And I, I'm forever grateful for them for doing that. He's dead now. But I had told my father when my, and he didn't believe me. And it took my ex-husband. I was heavily pregnant at the time and I had I had such a horrendous pregnancy. It was my second pregnancy. And um, I um, had such um obtru- I had a, I, I did suffer from obtrusive thoughts constantly. And um my ex-husband and my mum, you know, took it upon themselves when they saw how much pain I was in to do something. And they confronted him. 
and I'll I'll be forever grateful just that people can acknowledge that it, it actually did happen. That you were believed almost. Yeah, I felt as if a lot of people, because when I was drunk, I used to share with people what had happened to me, and it almost lessened what happened to me because people, it wasn't sharing with the right people. It was yeah. just sharing. It was almost like, I need to tell people that I, this happened. Yeah. yeah. And then nobody, I think I wasn't believed and when my father didn't believe me, it was so painful. You know, I used to phone him <laughs> when I was drunk and I would tell my dad and he wouldn't believe me. He just thought I was looking for attention. And um, when my mum and dad, when my mum and my ex-husband confronted my grandfather, it just meant everything to me. And and the fact that he admitted it all, it was just, it meant everything. Once he admitted it all, how did your father react after that? Um, he, when he admitted it and they, they, they told him what he, he had said, he said he was going to, you know, he said that he was going to kill him. But in actual fact, very shortly afterwards, when he thought I was going to maybe take it to the police and press charges, he put the pressure on me not to do anything that would ruin his life and that he didn't need that sort of attention. So again, my dad had many opportunities to make it right with me, to show me that he loved me and he didn't. So, and I just didn't want to, it was too difficult at that point. I was heavily pregnant and I did, I did speak to the police and things like that, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't at the time. Oh, <clears throat> are you okay? Yeah. 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 It's sorry. Thank it's just you. like, it's, you hold no, these things in and then it's. I know. I know. Uh, and I'm really grateful you've shared it. Thank you so much. Um, so you met this woman and you stopped drinking. Yeah. How did you do that? Did you just stop or did you reduce I or? Just, no, I just, I just stopped. I just stopped. Um, she was, I, I saw, I used to go and see her for two hours every week. And, you know, it wasn't, I didn't drive at the time. I, 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 that's one of the things that I remember because I was always hungover. So I could never really make a lesson. So I used to get the bus and I, it was like a, an hour bus journey to go to her two hours back. So I was really, really committed. You know, I was always looking to stop drinking. And one of the things that was a huge driving force for me was I had through this mist of, getting drunk and whatever else, I got engaged. And I just knew that there was no chance I was ever going to have children. And I always wanted to have children. You know, I dreamed of being a mum. And I was never going to have children and put them through what I went through. I was never going to let them be unsafe. And I was never going to be a mum that they didn't feel safe around me. And they didn't know, they had to guess if it was a drinking, was a hungover. I would never do it. I don't know where I got that. Even when I was drunk and I didn't know how I would do it, I knew that I would never do that. Mm. You either go one way or the other, I feel. You know, it's quite often the case. Yeah. And I think that when, when I met that lady, it was like, you know, only maybe a year 
before I got married. So it was very much on my horizon that children would be on the, you know, they were, they would be, they were on the plans and it was definitely what I wanted to do. And I just wanted to be, I, I knew that inside me, despite all these things inside me was a good person and a, and a, and I wanted to see that person. I didn't. I didn't want to look in the mirror any longer and just feel feel wretched. I wanted to look in the mirror and feel like, and it started happening. You know, it started happening, and it it, it took a long time. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but I started to 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 like who I was becoming. And you and were twenty twenty four, right? When you stopped drinking, yeah. yeah. Which is young. And how did you manage the feelings from the past in the beginning? Did you get any support or was it through your need for children or how did you you do it? I I actually, I, I, I didn't have a lot of support with that. I did find that when I stopped drinking a lot of the stuff, she kind of went through a 12 step program. And she kept, and I, I totally understand where she was coming from. And I understand the teaching, you know, you can't drive forwards while looking in the rear view mirror. But when you have such a lot of pain and these sorts of things that have happened to you, you, you can only push it down so far and it just resurfaces again. So... I probably started and, and I was very lucky because my ex my ex-husband stopped drinking the day before me. So we were in a bubble of, you know, I felt like I, t- I had, I mean, I really hadn't had a lot of relationships and I never had the opportunity to be, you know, in a relationship where it wasn't toxic. So him and I, we kind of became teenagers again. We were like, Let's go to Nando's. Let's go <laughs> to the cinema. You know, we didn't have alcohol in the house. We didn't have people around with alcohol in the house. I didn't, I did not want to go to a pub. I didn't want to do anything to do. So I was very much in a lovely alcohol-free bubble. And that, I I don't know if I could have done that without him. You know, I really, really don't. I think that support, because, I mean, even my mum, who I love to death, would have been saying to me, you can drink. You can drink in moderation. I mean, she'll still say that to me now. She truly believes that. <laughs> yeah. You can, so if, if I hadn't had my ex-husband, I would have been at home, let's say, and I would have been like, just have a wine. And if you can have just one, you're all right. And we'll see how it goes. No, that wouldn't have worked. I know it wouldn't have worked. So I was I was very, very lucky in that, in that we could be in a, an alcohol-free bubble together. But the feelings, all those kind of feelings that you're talking about, they were like they were just simmering under the surface, you know. And I and I was kind of oblivious for a good wee while, but they soon came. They soon they soon kind of popped up. Yeah, I, I say that's like we talk about the emotional sobriety, right? And and quite often in the beginning, it's actually trying to learn how to stop drinking, learn how to live a life without drinking. You know, you didn't drink every day, but, you know, it was very present in your life every day, thinking about it. 
And that's why I compare it to learning to drive, that once you've kind of worked out how to do it, and then there's the next phase, and it's kind of working out who you are, what your identity is. And then I imagine for you with your past where you've had no role models in your life, um, no structure, and maybe that's why that 12-step thing worked for you because there was structure there that they began to rise to the surface then. Yeah. I mean, I, I like you, and obviously I've, I, I relate to you in so many ways because I really didn't want alcohol to be a part of my, I didn't want it to be part of my daily life. I mean, I I have been to a few AA meetings along the years, but they just didn't resonate with me. I wanted to be like, I don't care about alcohol. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I certainly don't want to go over my story on a daily basis. I don't want to, you know, and I do understand that it helps so many people, but it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. I just... I don't even know if it was the 12-step program that helped me with that lady. I think it was just having space for myself in that week, those two hours, to just, like, you know, focus on where I wanted to, you know, how I could remove alcohol and almost, you know, she was a very maternal woman as well. So I just felt as if, you know, I I was in such a safe and lovely space and I I almost wanted to, to her to be proud of me. She really, she reminded me of my, my granny. So I, I, I found that to be so encouraging. And I'm very like that. I attach to people for reasons like that. Um, so, but I mean, what happened that kind of when we were talking about these feelings, when I actually had my children, these these feelings that I pushed down all came back up. And I actually don't know how I managed to stay sober during those times because I, when I say, I mean, I had postnatal depression, but I had almost psychosis. So I had my baby and I had, I was obviously it was my life's dream to have a baby, but I had dread... When I say I had obtrusive thoughts, they were they were just debilitating. And they started, I think, when I got pregnant. And I read somewhere that, you know, I read somewhere that it said, if you've been abused, you will become an abuser. And from that moment on, I could not wrap my head around that. And I, when I had my baby, I did not want to be left with her alone at any point because my worst fear was that something would happen to her. And it, it made no sense because all I wanted to do was take care of her. But I did not want to be left alone with her. And it totally ruined my time with my child. I'm talking about every single day, every single day. And then I had another, when I had my second child, I actually started those feelings again when I got pregnant. And... They just it was it was just horrendous to the point that when I had her, I stopped eating. I really felt like I was I wanted to die. I really felt like I wanted to die because I hadn't dealt with those feelings. Those feelings were there and they came out when I had postnatal depression. And, you know, the doctors kind of gave me medication, but it made no it made no difference. And I actually didn't I didn't verbalize what I was thinking 
you know, I didn't verbalize that I'd read this thing. At that point, it would have been like three years before. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was scared to be left with my child. And it was all consuming. It was horrendous. So that those are things that you just don't expect to happen. You think that I'm sober, I'm doing all the right things. Why is this coming up? But I do feel like it's kind of a, when you're brought up as a child in those situations where you are under constant stress and you're trying, you're, you basically got a codependent relationship with your father and you're guess, second guessing everything. That's how I've been trained to be. That's just how mm. I am. Mm. And alcohol used to really just numb all that. It would just turn it for a while, for a while. It would turn it yeah. down. Then it would ramp back up. But I didn't think that when I was sober that that would happen. Um, and it did. And it, it really, really took the pleasure out of me having my children, which was was really, really, it was horrendous. horrendous Devastating, situation. really. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment. You might know it, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in there about PTSD and, you know, for what you've been through in your life, it's almost like your nervous system's reacting off the mm -hmm. back of that when you had your children, you know, it comes out, doesn't it? Yeah. It's so cruel. It's so cruel. It's like the times that the thing that you've always wanted and you dream of and it almost felt like, you know, what happened to me keeps causing yeah. these scars again and again. But actually what happened was I um I did eventually now this that that wasn't then, this is maybe three years ago, I did um MDMA therapy, trauma therapy with a doctor. Yeah. And it honestly was transformative. It really, really was for me. You know, it, it, and I was very, very skeptical about doing that because obviously being sober, I just I felt as if that what does that mean for my sobriety? But it was very much, you know, under medical supervision and it, it helped me immeasurably. It really, really did. It helped me to release a lot of trauma. And, you know, I, I'm so I'm just so grateful for it. I, I, I've heard so many things that I heard about, you know, your conversation with Professor Nutt and um, it really made a huge difference to me. Can, can so, you uh, elaborate on the, on how that worked? Yeah, so basically um, the format that I, because, I mean, here it's it's illegal to do here, but I, I, I found a doctor who, who was the GP, who's also a psychologist, and we did, um, we did, say, eight sessions together, and then I was able to get the MDMA, and I used, uh, he, he told me, how much to take I had to test it do all these things and then I basically took it and I listened to like music and I already had set an intention so you set an intention about what you're trying to do and I went through I, I, you know it was it lasted for about six hours and I was able to release so much trauma and pain and then I was able to talk to him and we integrated it so I mean I would have loved to I, I only did two sessions because to be honest I just felt like you know it just was it, I felt like it was too much for me to do in those situations by by myself really 
but I wanted I would I feel as if I would have loved to have continued to do to do it and um but it did it it, it, it almost felt like it went to the deep bowels of my body and brought up things that I'd been holding on to and just allowed me to release them and I do believe I mean I still have I, I still have so many areas that I need to work on specifically in relationships but it allowed me to let go of a lot of the trauma and forgive forgive you know forgive people for what's happened to me and I can still feel sad about it I can still feel like you know I know that it wasn't fair what's happened to me but I was able to forgive my father even to an extent forgive my grandfather because holding on to that was doing more pain to me you know it wasn't it didn't it wasn't affected them it was me um so I, I found that to be really really helpful you're an incredible woman honestly what you told me so far how how you've dealt with it is amazing and that you know not everyone will know about what treatment you've had or understand it and maybe on your instagram page you can elaborate or you might have something uh, more detailed but um, I'm so pleased you managed to find something to unlock that pain because a lot of people go for their whole lives holding on to it and it, it just rips through your life and other people around you because you can not let people in and you're not living your authentic life, are you, all the time you're holding that pain. And, you know, I often revert back to that statement by Gabor Mate is not, not why the addiction, why the pain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of us in our life medicate ourselves to, hold that pain back Uh, and quite often that if you don't manage that pain quite often you either go back to your drug of choice or to something else so I'm so pleased so how did life look like after that after the after the therapy the the trauma therapy I mean it took it, it, it it takes a while to kind of work through but I started to see that I had, I mean, up to that point, I had I, also got divorced through that. I went through a, a very long 10-year divorce. So I had a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. I hadn't worked through these specific traumas. So I, fe- I felt like a, a weight had been lifted and I started to actually think, I'm okay. I'm like, you're an okay person, you know. And I, I started to believe when my children would say, you're amazing, Mum. We love you. You know, my everything I do is for my children. So for them to be proud of me. Yeah. Is is everything. And um I really started to feel like I could accept love. And I think, I mean, I have I, you know, had a very long divorce. It was 10 years, which um took a lot out of me. But I'm actually I, you know, I'm I'm friends now with my ex-husband, which if you had asked me two years ago, you would think would have been practically impossible. But for my children, I believed that that was the right thing to do. And I am so grateful for all the things that he did do, which were had a positive impact on my life. And I've kind of forgiven him for, you know, the, the just dragging out such a long thing. It's just, it just doesn't matter. Things like that don't matter. What matters to me is how I can be the best version of myself, how I can move forward, 
how I can show these two little girls that I've got that anything is possible, you know, to believe in yourself, to help other women, to help women that are were me 18 years ago or even were me when I was going through, you know, pregnancies and having these horrible, obtrusive thoughts and thinking I must be the world's worst person because I must be the only person that thinks these things. You're not, you're not. You've just went through a really horrible, hard time and you need to grab somebody's hand and 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 get some help. I mean, it, I didn't, the Instagram and things like that weren't around, you know, all those years ago when I was going through these things. There wasn't that ability to get, to listen to somebody and think, God, they've been through that too. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, these sort of mediums are just such, they're so important for people that are recovering and, you know, are getting sober or ha are recovering from trauma. It's so important. It's the connection, isn't it? It's so yeah. important, um, you know, why these interviews are so important and people are going to be listening to this in bits, I'm sure, but so pleased and happy that you've managed to turn your life around at such a young age as well. You know, stopping drinking at 24 was the best thing that you could ever gifted yourself. And I know it's been a long journey, yeah. My word that I don't normally use, but it's appropriate. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't know about your divorce. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and that's another layer to it as well, added to everything else, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you've managed now to turn that around so you're now friends, which I think is important for your two girls as well because, yeah. you know, I've got a son who's 30 now, but uh, we separated him and his mum when he was quite young. And we always said, look, it's so important for his upbringing that we are compatible with how we bring him up, you know, the same boundaries, which uh, we stuck to. It wasn't, oh, you're yeah. with your dad now. You can have this, you can have that. We had the same rules. And he's grown up to be a, an amazing man, you know, off the yeah. back of it and, you know, it's really important and it sounds to me like finally you've started to get things together that are working for you. And when you say your girls are so proud of you, it's important for me to ask, are you proud of you as well? I'm proud of where I my where my path is taking me to now. I feel as if I always... I always would, I was, I wouldn't put it this way. I would not change anything that's happened to me because if it wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am today. And I'm still, I'm still a work in progress. Who isn't a work in progress? But I'm so proud of the fact that I've been able to weather the storm for 18 years and not drink. And I've been able to show up for my children. And I'm now like, you know, I'm able to work with people and relate. To them and be you know and I'm happy to share my story because I want to help people feel like they're not alone in any way and um, I'm proud of me because I, I think that that's all of those things are quite an achievement given where I was Absolutely and I think there's so many layers to your story that people will relate to 
from different walks of life, you know, uh, and, yeah. and it's incredibly powerful. And what does life look like for you moving ahead? Because for me, uh, people ask me that and I think, I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm <laughs> quite, uh, I feel quite excited. Uh, and I've got a few things in the pipeline that I'm looking forward to, but there's no, I, I'm like quite open to the flow of it, really. I'm quite relaxed about it. I've got no real agenda, even though I'm bloody geriatric. I'm, uh, I always <laughs> say that's putting myself down, but it's, a, it's an inner joke, really. Um, but I, I'm quite easy going with it, you know. I think what something has come to me that's good, it's great, you know. So, so how do you see your future moving forward? Well, I, I, I want to continue on the path I'm on. I want to, I mean, I'm all about every day I still battle. I, do, I still battle with obtrusive thoughts. So I, I really do have to try and manage my life so that I'm around really good people, positive people who really genuinely care for me. And that's difficult because for so many years I wasn't. So I, I really just want to flourish and I want to help as many people as I can. I want to be as an, engaged a mother as I possibly can be. I want to, I, I really want to be happy. I mean, I've been single for a long time and I would, you know, it's not like I'm looking for a partner to complete me, like to, to save me. And I was up until very recently, I was looking for, even through all this work, I was looking for somebody to save me. And it's I've came to the realisation that I don't need someone to save me. I just want to become the best version of me. And that will be reflected back to me in a partner, ultimately. And I've got plenty of time. And I've already, the love of my life are my two children. And so if I meet some someone else, that's a bonus. Um, but... I just want to kind of do as much good work as I can and just, you know, keep on this path. What a gorgeous answer. That is just beautiful. Thank you. And I, I, I'm going to round it off there because uh, that's just the perfect way to end this incredible interview. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been well, a ride all the way along through this interview. You know, it's a fascinating story, and I'm just so pleased that you've got to where you are today. Uh, and I'm really grateful that you shared it with us. So, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful for for your time and for everything that you're doing. It's so so special and so important. So, thank you. Oh, thank you, Lucy. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.